as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Welcome. If you came in in the middle of service, we want to welcome you as we welcomed everyone else earlier. And now I want to invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles uh, to Romans 14. We're going to continue our exposition in this, uh, Paul's magnum opus, the epistle to the Romans. And we're going to pick up in verse 13, and we'll actually, looks like we'll finish the 14th chapter of Romans today. Um, we're, we're, we're closing in on the end of the epistle. We've been at it for, I guess, about a year and a half now. Uh, I, I trust it's been edifying and beneficial um, to you individually, and, and all, most, more than anything, to all of us as a, as a corporate body of believers. And the principle we want to see this morning from the text is that we individually not cause a brother or sister to stumble. We're talking about Christian liberty. We're talking about sanctification. And sanctification and Christian liberty go together despite what's being taught today. Are you with me? Amen, amen. amen. All right, let's look then together at Paul's words to the church at Rome that was made up of Jews and Gentiles, believing Jews, believing Gentiles. They were one in Christ. They, stand, they stood upon equal ground. And they have very different ways of thinking with regard to tradition, with regard to freedom in Christ. The mature, their conscience was freed. The immature, the less mature, their consciences were gripped by certain activities that although Christ has obviously deemed them free in, they weren't convinced in their own minds yet. Last week we looked at the instructions for one another, how the weak are to deal with the strong and how the strong are to deal with the weak. And he continues on with the therefore In verse 13, please stand for the reading of God's word, Romans 14, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith you have... 
Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But, Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whoever does not proceed from faith is sin. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, Paul is covering a theme of the correct understanding of which is greatly needed in the church today. And that is Christian liberty. Because Christian liberty is a predominant topic of our day within Christian circles, specifically reform circles. The ideal of Christian liberty that is most often conveyed and celebrated in our day is not the ideal of Christian liberty that agrees with Paul. Or that's conveyed in Scripture. So, what kind of liberty does the Christian possess? What kind of liberty ought to be exercised in and through the life of the believer in our day and age? Those questions we will attempt to tackle as we proceed through the text today. Now, this topic is important because any lack of clarity about Christian liberty opens the door to two great errors in the Christian life. Number one, legalism. Ugly. Number two, antinomianism. Ugly. Are you with me? Legalism is one of the most destructive misrepresentations of Christianity that there is. Make no mistake about that. What is legalism? At its core, it's this. It's faith and trust in Jesus Christ plus a list of do's and don'ts that are to be adhered to in order for salvation. That's legalism. It's not the gospel. Another major distortion of Christianity is antinomianism, which means to be against God's law. Or to say no to the imperatives of Scripture, the commands of Scripture. Those who claim, I'm so free in Christ, I need not to have any concern for obedience to God's word, to God's law. Because grace has so truly set me free, I can do as I please, when I please, how I please, without concern or without consequence. Antinomianism. To say that we're justified by faith alone and then then tell people that their consciences remain bound to things that are not forbidden in the scripture fall into the air of a form of legalism. We looked at those things last week. But to use Christian liberty as an excuse to indulge the flesh, you fall into the error of antinomianism. Paul condemns antinomianism as harshly as he does legalism. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers... And sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, at this time, 
As I said, the churches were formed. They were made up of both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Most of the Jewish believers had been long accustomed to the traditions of the Mosaic law. Eating habits, feasts, festivals, ceremonies, traditions. All of which Christ has fulfilled. Amen? Amen. Their conscience, many of them, those who were weak, were still gripped by those things. On the other side of the church, it was made up of believing Gentiles who had never learned such things, and consequently, they were not going to be uh, brought onto, the, uh, onto a uh, yoke of slavery and have to adhere to these things, plus belief in Jesus. You know, those food laws, festivals, and all these things. Now, since the nature of man is to slide from differences of opinion to quarrels and contentions, <laughs> did you get that? Since the nature of man is to slide from differences of opinion to quarrels and contentions, Paul the Apostle, who knows these things, shows us how varying choices or differing opinions with regard to preferences or options in their freedom in Christ might live together without discord within the body of Christ. Now, in case you're visiting... Typically, when when preachers preach on unity, it's because there's disunity within their local congregation. That is not the case here. We just have to be in Romans 14. We go through the Bible verse by verse, and this is where we pick it up. And that's not going on our church. Praise God for that. We've had that before, and it's nonsense, and it's painful to the body. But that's not going on. This is simply where we are. So within the church, Paul's made it clear, some are strong, they're more mature, some are weak, that is, they're less mature. All of us are a people on equal ground in Jesus Christ, but yet we live, verse 7, not for ourselves. In other words, friend, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ, and we are his body. If the pinky is broken, it affects the whole body. Amen? We are the body of Jesus Christ. He is the head. We belong to Christ, and we are therefore accountable to one another. Paul's made it clear all throughout Romans, beginning in chapter 12, in verse 1 and through, up to this point, is all application of the first 11 chapters of divine sovereign grace, and he says it's not about you. Because the individual has his opinions, do they not? Do we not have our own opinions? Paul is saying this, the individual and his opinions are not the axis on which the world turns, verse 1. Notice that, back in verse 1, chapter 14. The world may think like that, but the church, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, is not to think like the world. We're not to be conformed by the world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our what? Of our mind continually being renewed, amen? Renewed and being renewed. That's part of the Christian life. That's called sanctification. So in light of Christian liberty, how are we to accept and receive one another? How are we to respond to certain areas of freedom where one person's conscience is bound, 
from doing or not doing that which Scripture does not prohibit? And how are they to deal with someone whose conscience is free with regard to those things for which Scripture does not prohibit? Now, obviously, beloved, there are things that are clearly commanded in Scripture, things that are clearly forbidden in Scripture. There's no matter of debating over whether or not someone committing fornication is in sin or not. Amen? There's no matter for debate with regard to a man or a woman committing adultery. There's no debate within the church with regard to whether homosexuality ought to be accepted within the church or whether or not we ought to acknowledge homosexual marriage as normal. It's not up for debate. Envy's not up for debate. Strife's not up for debate. Fits of rage are not up for debate. Drunkenness, revelries, and orgies All Galatians 5 listed therein are not up for debate. As a matter of fact, if someone claims to be a Christian and these things characterize their lives, they will not receive the kingdom, which means they're not a Christian. It doesn't mean we can't fall into those things. But Galatians 5, if those things characterize one's life, this is the pattern, this is the character of what they are and who they are, they will not inherit the kingdom. It's not debatable. The church has no right to even begin to think to debate such things, whether or not they're permissible, because the culture says yes. It doesn't matter what the culture says. What does the word of God say? But there are things to which the Bible does not speak. There are things that the Bible is silent about. And in those things, people may differ. They may be very opinionated about them, whether or not they're free to do those things or not do these things, and so on. So the weak or the immature aren't to set the agenda for the church. Because they're convinced of these things in their minds, the weak don't set the agenda for the church. If the weak set the agenda for the church, then all the church suffers because of the weak. The job of the mature is to bring the weak up to a greater, richer understanding. Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Amen? So we don't stop progress by having a debate every time an issue or disagreement pops up because someone's conscience is bound over here where with the mature they say, my conscience isn't bound. Uh, The Lord's given us freedom in this area. Verse 1, as for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel about over opinions. Welcome the brothers who's gripped in his conscience over these things, for which he might not realize he's free in, but just because he's opinionated, you don't stop the show in order to debate or quarrel over his opinions. That's, that's the thought. You know, I'm convinced if a preacher will simply stick to preaching the whole counsel of God, all these kinds of situations will be covered in due time. Right? Just preach through the word, brother. Preach it. And all these things will be covered. Now, now typically, disputes, debates, or disagreements arise within the church with regard to the issues that have to do with these two things. Sanctification and Christian liberty. Especially right now in our day. Sanctification, all believers are immediately set apart. Sanctification means to be set apart. You're set apart once and for all and forever, but you're also being sanctified. We're being made what? More like Christ. He's conforming us into the image of Christ. That's sanctification. And sanctification and Christian liberty are closely associated concepts. 
These are things that go together. These are not things that are separate. Understanding our liberty as Christians is very important for our sanctification. Well, the pursuit of sanctification, yes, I said pursuit of sanctification, because a lot of people think it's just let go and let God, and, you know, you just, he'll wave a magic wand over you, and all of a sudden one day you're sanctified, or more sanctified. The pursuit of sanctification is very important for Christian liberty. In other words, a believer's sanctification and Christian liberty are not a contradiction. Christian liberty and sanctification are not a contradiction. They're not conflicting doctrines. They're not in competition to one another because you always get some guy or some group of men who pit one part of truth against another. They overstress one doctrine and they omit its complement. Amen? That's very important because we live in a day, as of late, where there is much attention being given, as I said, to the doctrine of sanctification, especially, as I said, within reform circles. You read it in books, in all you blog lovers. <laughs> who, who reads or inputs to blogs more than reform people? People who love Reformed doctrine. Praise God for the Reformation. Praise God for the doctrines of grace. Praise God for Reformed thinking. I'm not talking about hyper-Reformed. I'm talking about biblically Reformed. Blog after blog, lectures, conferences. And the reasoning goes something like this. Now, since many Christians are burdened with the fear that God is going to reject them because of their besetting sins, they obviously are having an identity crisis. They don't understand the doctrine of justification that frees them from all sin of being condemned as they stumble along the way. They don't understand their identity in Jesus. Okay, that may be true. So they reason. They need to understand, what we need to press is that they need to understand that God did not send his son to die for us so that we would become more and more like him and less and less sinful. No, he sent his son to die for us so that we, be, we would be free from the worry of his condemnation. Both are true. But the one is being stressed over the other. The other is almost being ignored, growing in holiness, Sending land, it's almost being ignored today. So in order that they can be free from the worry of being rejected by God who loves them and has justified them, we'll just say that sanctification, in order to be sanctified, you just must simply remember your justification. That's what's being taught. To be sanctified, in other words, to grow more holy, you just have to remember more your justification. Remember more your position in Christ. And then you'll automatically change. So as a result, they say, your sanctification is simply remembering your forensic, God's forensic declaration that you are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Okay, are you with me, beloved? Many true believers do struggle with besetting sins. Do we not all? Yes, we do. That's part of being a Christian. The moment you're born again and have the Holy Spirit, that's when the battle begins. It doesn't end there. It begins there. So you begin to battle with sin. You begin to battle against sin. And you will continue to battle it until the day you go home to be with the Lord. 
The life in the Spirit does not end warfare. It commences warfare. So we all have besetting sins, amen? But that doesn't mean we don't pursue holiness. I'm just remembering my justification more. I'm having an identity crisis. It doesn't end there. Understanding your justification by faith alone is very important. Understanding your position in Christ is very important, but it doesn't end there. We have the Spirit. When the flesh raises its head, the Spirit enables us to crucify, to crucify fleshful, fleshful desires. It's not a memory simply remembering more at the moment. So all that to say, Christian liberty is not freedom from the concern about becoming more Christ-like. Christian liberty is not liberty from, from being concerned anymore about sin as it's being touted. This proves once again that, that some people move from silliness to absurdity in their reasonings. At all theological levels. This has infected the church today. Greatly. So in light of Christian liberty, how are we to accept and receive one another, all of whom are being sanctified? How do we receive one another? Now we heard Paul say, the weak are not to condemn the strong, and the strong are not to despise the weak, saying, you know, you need to go back to the nursery room. You're so immature. No, we're not to do that. In light of the context, Christian liberty, question. In light of first century Rome, when certain Jews were were not convinced in their minds not to eat ham, not to eat bacon, because they were weak, should the stronger in Christ, who knew they were liberated by the work of Christ, take bacon and a ham sandwich and go in front of their weak brother and go, "Mm, isn't it great that we're free in Jesus, brother? With bacon juice dripping out of your mouth. (laughs) Graphic, huh? No, of course not. Of course not. Is it necessary for us then to eat or to drink or to do whatever liberty tells you you can do in order to prove you're strong in the faith? No, of course not. Is it necessary to do what you believe you're free to do in order to prove that you're mature in Christ? Of course not. Because if you think like that, then you're immature comes back to bite you, doesn't it? Of course not. I do not need to show off my strength and the freedom I have in front of my weaker brethren to show off. As a matter of fact, the strong actually demonstrate greater, a greater amount of maturity when they do not exercise that liberty for the sake of whom? Their weaker brother. Their weaker brother. Now, with that uh, rather lengthy introduction, look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance of way, in the way of a brother. Now again, context, does this, does this dismantle all judgment and discretion or discernment within the body of Jesus Christ? Of course not. If you threw out judgment for behavior and sin, you couldn't exercise church discipline. Context here with judgment has to do with the weak who are gripped by conscience looking at the mature going, they're not very pious because, you know, they, uh, they drink wine. 
or whatever. In that day, or they eat ham, they eat a pig. Notice, therefore. Therefore what? Therefore, because of the arguments of verses 1 through 12, and Paul's conclusion that all of us will stand before the judgment of seed of Jesus Christ, and each will give an account of himself before God as a believer. Okay, therefore, uh, since you won't be sitting on the seat of judgment then, don't bother sitting there now. Right? Let us stop passing judgment on one another, and he's addressing both groups equally at this point, the strong belittling the weak, and the weak not judging the strong. But here now, he, he kind of moves and, and draws our attention now to his main target, and that is his fellow strong believers. Those who aren't gripped in their conscience by certain things that the word of God does not forbid. Notice what he says. <clears throat> Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide. But rather decide is literally, but rather let's judge. Paul uses a play on words. He said, if you want to judge something, make this judgment. Judge within yourself, strong believer, not gripped by a weak conscience, not to put any kind of stumbling block or obstacle in front of your weaker brother. You want to make a judgment? Judge that. As your brother or sisters grow in Christ, don't put something in front of them that will cause them to stumble along the way. Stumbling block. Proskoma, which comes from a word which means to strike against, like a stone in the road. You ever stub your toe on a piece of furniture in the dark? I don't know why I used to do that so many times um, years ago. Walking in the dark, stub a toe, break a toe. It just starts to heal, stub a toe, break a toe again. And I walk very carefully at night now. If I go back to let the dog out or in, I walk. I know where all the furniture is, and I walk very carefully. Because it's painful. Like a stone or an obstacle in the path that, will, that, that someone can strike their foot against. Don't put it there. Don't place a hindrance before your brother. Um, scandalone, from which we think of what? Scandal. It's a scandal, and the picture there is a movable stick or a trigger for a trap, a box trap, like for a rabbit. Don't put it there. You want to judge something, strong believer? Judge this within yourself. Make a decision not to cause your brother to stumble. Now, just as the Mosaic Law, back in Leviticus 19, commanded people not to put an obstacle in the way of a literal blind man, is a joke? We're not to put the same kind, or any kind, of, of stumbling block in the way of someone's spiritual walk. Are you with me? So to ridicule or to mock, and most importantly, attempt to lead a, a, a less mature brother or sister who's bound by conscience in an issue, opinionated about something, to cause them to stumble in that area, Paul is saying, take heed. And Jesus said, you better take heed. Listen to what Jesus said. 
A clear warning from our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 18, verse 6, he's speaking to his disciples. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone, 300 pounds, fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea, which was a Gentile form of punishment, which would have made it even more offensive to this Jewish audience. Master teacher, Jesus. Master offender, Jesus. And Jesus is not talking about infants here. Jesus is not talking about children in a physical sense when he says little ones. That is clear. It's clear who he's talking about. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me. Is that clear? That is clear. To sin. He likens the believer to children and he says, before you would ever offend a believer, cause them to stumble, you'll be better off drowned. Whew. In verse 7, he follows it up by saying, woe to the world for temptation to sin. In other words, we expect the unregenerate world to, to offend believers. Right? That's what they do. But we certainly don't expect believers to offend, stumble, or trap other believers into sin. In fact, notice verses 8 and 9 of Matthew 18. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. Sounds like a good deal, amen? If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. Now, the idea in the context of this passage is that if you're offensive to another brother, a young believer, uh, one of those who are his, if you're led into sin by any of these members, you're better off to cut them off. Is this a call for physical mutilation? No, it's figurative language, amen? We don't want to see people coming in here next week. (laughs) With patches on their eye and bandages on... Their arms. No. The issue is this. It's to deal with sin so drastically if this is cause for offense. Deal with it, Jesus said. And if we find ourselves offending, we should take drastic measures not to offend. That's that's the issue. That's, That's the principle. Because otherwise, Jesus made it clear, you're better off dead. You're better off dead. Notice in verse 14. Paul puts together for us an objective and subjective reality with regard to matters of conscience. Typically, when we read scripture, what's more important, the objective or the subjective? The objective. The facts, right? What's interesting here, objectively, Paul knows that all food is clean. There is no food deemed unclean. Jesus declared that in Mark chapter 7 and verse 19. And he declared that through the vision given to Peter in Acts chapter 10, right? That's an objective fact. But subjectively, emotionally, in the conscience of the weak, some within the church weren't yet convinced in their own what? Minds. Verses 5 and 6. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Some things are not hard to understand. But as we've said, some things are hard to accept. The doctrine of 
of predestination is not hard to understand. It's just hard for some to accept. Amen? So what do we do when someone doesn't, isn't convinced in their own mind with regard to the doctrine of sovereign grace and sovereign election? What, pound them to death? <laughs> no, the principle is be gentle with them. Help them along. Bring them up in maturity. Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, till they understand these things, which are not hard to understand. They're only hard to accept. To the place where they're convinced in their own mind. Okay? So Paul, with context to food, there's no food unclean. Paul Paul is objectively convinced about that, but subjectively, many weren't convinced in their own mind. And what's interesting, much to my surprise and much to our surprise, no doubt, is that in this context, the subjective trumps the objective. Oh, ow, for guys like me. I'm all about objective, for the most part. That is to say, if it's unclean for him, guess what? It's unclean, even though it's not unclean. It's not unclean. For him, it is unclean, so therefore, it's unclean, even though it's clean. If I believe something to be a sin, even if it, in and of itself, is not a sin... And then if I go on and do it, I've sinned. Why? Because the sin is doing that in which I have been gripped by conscience not to do. Now, that could change over time with regard to maturity. But let me give you an example. When when, when someone, say, comes to Christ in our day, and they're bound by conscience not to listen to secular music, do I have to call them a prude? What, are you trying to be pious, not listening to secular music? Oh, you're against rock and roll. I happen to like rock and roll. So you're just immature. Do we do that? No. No. And here's why. If this person is delivered by the grace of God from sin and death and given life in Christ by the Holy Spirit and his conscience is convinced not to listen to rock and roll, perhaps he's convinced not to listen to rock and roll because that genre of music takes his mind, takes his memory in the wrong direction. Leave him alone is the principle. If you're free to listen to rock and roll, crank it up, baby. I wouldn't recommend listening to lyrics that blaspheme our Savior or use foul, raunchy, rotten language because after all, we're called to think on what kinds of things? Things that are right, things that are good. Don't belittle your brother. Nevertheless, the church doesn't create a law prohibiting listening to this genre and that genre because after all, you could fall into sin. Well, just because there's the potential of falling into sin, we don't make laws, we don't legislate where God himself hasn't legislated. Amen? That's the idea of this chapter. If a brother or sister thinks it's unclean to eat, and eats, and thinks that something is prohibited, some activity that they choose not to participate in, if you've applied pressure on him to participate... Take heed to the warnings we just read. Because if he falls into it by pressure from you, he will deliberately be doing something he thinks is dishonoring to Jesus, even though it 
in and of itself is not dishonoring and will not be able to give thanks to God as you do. Verse 6. One who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You're hindering him now or her from giving thanks to God by pressuring them. Verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, you may know it's okay to eat that meat or to exercise that freedom, whatever that freedom may be, but you do not have to parade that freedom in the face of the one who's bound by conscience. Don't parade it. That is so immature. That's not maturity. That's like being a little baby. Like a kid, look what I get to do and you can't do it. <laughs> See, that's how ridiculous, this, this peeves me when Christians do this. So because he or she is convinced that it's not proper to eat that meat, participate in that activity, we are to be very careful and sensitive of the weakness of that brother or of that sister. He will be grieved. He will be distressed to see you eating this food or exercising this particular freedom that he doesn't have, especially if it's in a blatant or deliberate or provocative way. Because when you do it, you're not walking in what? In love. You're not walking in love. Verse 16. So, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. That is to say, don't do something that your weaker brother or sister thinks is wrong, even though it's not wrong in and of itself, and in the end, cause him or cause her to speak evil of it. So we're responsible, it's quite clear, to live and to carry ourselves as much as is possible, not to give the offense or appearance of what? Appearance of evil. To the world, and especially to our fellow brothers and sisters. Now, obviously, regardless of how hard you try not to give the appearance of evil, some people you can never satisfy. People within the church, regardless of what you do or don't do, somehow they'll see it as dishonoring to the Lord or not the Christian way. And we talked about some of the ridiculous things in our day. You know, man-written laws against getting Christmas trees because it's pagan or having, you know, reindeer stuff at Christmas. All that is nonsense. But if you're convinced of it, don't get a Christmas tree. Do it to the glory of God. Don't come down on me for it. Because I like Christmas trees. So you need not, and you are not, and are not, to put pressure on your brother or sister to join you against his or her conscience, where you say, Come on, join in. Don't be a legalistic killjoy. You're throwing a wet blanket on all of us, brother. Don't do that. Paul's warning, you're destroying him by pressuring him to go against his conscience. 
Verse 15, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Destroy means ruin. It means to spoil by leading him to tamper with his conscience. Do not lead them to tamper with their conscience. If you're convinced not to listen to rock and roll, God may mature that person out of it. God may, they may be convinced never to listen to it. Praise God for that. We won't be going to any concerts together, but praise God for that. And I am serious. <clears throat> you won't see me asking him to go to a concert. I have heard of far too many Christians in our day, especially young men, pressuring other believers, and in our day the big hot topic is drinking alcohol. That's the big thing. Or join in their party path as they roam from bar to bar. Let's go to the gaslight, man. Let's gas lamp quarter and, and try to look cool. So they try to pressure people to follow them into that. Look, if you're going to do it, whatever, fine. Uh, getting drunk and all that, that is sin. And if you're pressuring a brother or sister to, 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 to follow you, you best beware. <clears throat> Again, verse 13. Decide never. You want to decide something? You want to judge something? Judge within yourself never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Setting a stumbling block may be done purposefully where you apply pressure or it could be done aimlessly in in, in honest ignorance. But the more you grow in understanding, the less ignorance you have. Amen? Let me give you an illustration. Back in the 1970s, our pastor, remember him? He was a great teacher, theologian, Dr. Gene Grilly of the OPC, Orthodox Presbyterian Church that I came up in. He was given a new assignment, so he was preparing the way for a young 30-year-old pastor coming up into the OPC who just graduated uh, seminary out at Westminster um, in Philadelphia. He was a young Reformed guy. So he was the typical, nothing, I love this brother, nothing against, he was a great pastor to me, but he was the typical cliched poster, poster child, if you will, or prototype of most young guys who come out of reform seminaries, or at least prototypical of young zealous men who are mesmerized or captivated by reform tradition and theology. First thing you have to do is you have to grow a full beard, apparently. <clears throat> And you have to, you know, drink pale or dark lager. doesn't really matter. And you start smoking a pipe or, or a cigar. doesn't really matter. But if you want to fit the reform role, you almost have to do these things. So when he came, what did I start to see our young men in our church do? Grow full beards. Whether they participated in drinking lager or not, they started to drink lager. And they long pipes and, you know, and this is what they did. However... A couple deacons in our local OPC, before salvation, were drinking, smoking, rabble-rousing fixtures at the local taverns. And over a period of time, as this young, ignorant pastor exercised his liberties, eventually became a stumbling block for a couple of these men to fall back into drunkenness and the activities that follow drunkenness. An ignorant stumbling block. Today's there's a movement referred to as the, the YRR, the Young, Restless, and Reform Crowd. <laughs> Bloggers. 
And the classic MO of this group seems to be, you grow a beard, start smoking a pipe, start smoking a cigar, you drink Dutch or Swedish or lager, brewed in Geneva, of course. After all, that's where Kelvin taught. (laughs) Which, unfortunately, creates this kind of, of, of poser atmosphere. And in case you don't know what the term poser means, being a poser is being someone who's trying to fit into a certain scene with exaggeration or with great amplified effort. That what, that's what it means to be a poser. Okay? Now, many today are amplifying their efforts in reform circles by way of social media, i.e. Facebook. Right? And what they do is they post their reform dogmatics, praise God for reform dogmatics, and they have a couple Luther Calvin quotes, a photo of their favorite dark or pale ale, or maybe some homebrew tips, because they're into homebrewing beer now, and of course a photo of themselves dragging off a pipe, or a stogie, perhaps on the, on the patio of their favorite pub, And they're grandstanding in their activities under the caption what? Christian liberty. Come on, Syria. You talk about being cliched. Is it a sin in and of itself to smoke a cigar? Pipe? To drink pale or dark lager? No. (laughs) No, of course not. But parading it is problematic according to the text in principle. Amen? Amen. We get the picture here? I received an invitation uh, from a a local pastor a few months ago to uh, participate in a theological lecture in the garden area of his church, inviting me, actually, officially in a letter letter form, inviting me to invite all of you and your children to to attend this event and dinner. I'm not going to name the pastor, not going to name the church. I'm sure it's a great church. I don't know the guy. He's probably a great pastor. He's probably a great preacher. Don't know him. I have nothing against him. But he invited us, invited me to invite you to this event with a forewarning that this event will include smoking the drinking of alcohol. And I'm like, man, I'm not going to do that with the body, invite you all to this. Okay, now, Mark was with me, and I said, well, instead of having this, we'll just, we'll just do maybe our own, you know, subs and suds night. <laughs> or pints and Paul Malls or something. And there's a lot of this going on, so we were kind of making fun of it. But all kidding aside, all kidding aside, personally, I believe that it's immature and irresponsible for any pastor to encourage, let alone provide, the recreational use of alcohol to church-sponsored events. I don't have anything against the brother. Not a thing in the world. I just The reason I didn't invite you all, and I didn't even go, is I just think that it would have been immature on my part. Because I know many believers come from a past of drug and alcohol abuse that wage daily war against this kind of temptation, the last thing I want to do is put a stumbling block in your way to cause you to fall back into that. That's it. That's it. There's guys that meet around town and they listen to a theological lecture and they pop the top on a keg and light them up and call it hoagie and stogie day and that's cool, I've been invited, I've never gone. You know, they tap a keg and eat sub-sandwiches and listen to a theological lecture. That's cool. That's fine. 
But I'm not going to invite you all to it. So that I don't cause anyone to stumble. And I haven't gone myself because typically it's not a good environment for me to be with a guy who's 150 pounds soaking wet, who's already theological prideful, theologically prideful, who with every beer grows a foot taller in confidence <laughs> and 100 decimals in volume. <laughs> not good for me to be there. But initially, beloved, look, it may seem freeing to many people to be told, look, brother, it doesn't matter if you're sin, man. Just remember your justification and you'll be sanctified. It doesn't matter if you don't get better because the freedom that God wants to give you is the freedom from worry about the fact that you're not getting better. (laughs) See how... That's lunacy. That might sound good at first to some discouraged Christian who, who doesn't get justification and becomes grossly confused about sanctification. That might sound good. However, what they don't get is that God didn't make us to be satisfied with that because he's recreated us to become like him. The product of which, verse 17, is peace and Joy. Amen? Peace and joy. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of what? Righteousness and peace and joy. Jesus talked about righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. To seek his righteousness is not to seek positional righteousness, because if you're in Christ, you already have that. Seek to do that which is right, righteous, the product of which will be peace and Joy. So if an ignorant believer is satisfied with the currently popular formula of simply remembering your justification and you'll automatically be sanctified, they're robbing themselves of peace and joy that comes from growing, even though that growth may be slow and combined with stumbling. Just give me one big amen for that. Come on. So righteousness is not some outward parade or charade of piety, you know, that we only do what's on our list, and we don't do what's on that list. This is what's permissible to eat. This is what's permissible to drink. We don't go to movies because we're good Christians, and women don't wear lipstick after all. I mean, whew, right? That's how ridiculous it can get. It's not righteousness in that respect. You know, putting a prohibition on the church from partaking of alcoholic beverages because of the danger of getting drunk is legislating where God has not legislated. I told you about the pastor in Africa who came up to me. And he said, uh, to become a member in our church, you have to sign a contract that you won't drink any alcohol. He says, what do you think about that? And I said, I think it's really ridiculous. Well, what do you mean? Drunkenness is a danger. Well, it's a danger, but just because it's a danger, we don't create laws against it. Amen. Amen. Gluttony is a danger. We don't make food prohibition. (laughs) Well, these are the kinds of foods that can produce gluttony. Therefore, to be a good Christian, don't eat this and don't eat that. No. There's all kinds of people in AA who have a 25-year chip. And when they die, they're going to go to hell. Sober. Because they don't have the spirit of God. They haven't been born again. They have no good in and of themselves because they're sober. 
We're to be sober too, but that doesn't mean we make a law against drinking. Amen? Amen. That's the principle, this big drinking thing in our day. Don't cause someone to stumble and don't make laws against it because it's not against the law. Verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God, approved by men. That means both the weak and the strong. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. I may be free to do all things, but I don't have to do them in certain places or with certain people if it's going to be cause for stumbling. That's the principle. You don't have to prove that you're free, that every time you go to a Christian event, you show up with a six-pack. I've seen guys do that. They almost walk with it like this. Yeah. I'm like, ooh. Well, what are you, 21? You just turned 21? <laughs> okay, I get it. You're free to partake. Great. You see, look, liberty, Christian liberty is vertical and horizontal. Vertically speaking, the liberty that I joy in my heart, I can enjoy that before the Lord. I can rejoice that I'm free. As a matter of fact, I have unlimited freedom where he has deemed me free. Vertically, free. But horizontally, limited. Well, wait a minute. What do you mean by that? Quite simply. Between my brother, it's limited, verse 15, by my... Love. By my love. For if your brother's grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Free liberty, vertically, horizontally limited by my love for my brother because we're both in Christ. Verse 22. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God within light of the context. That's not an excuse never to share your faith. Amen? Context. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Basically, he's saying this. Mind your own business. Don't be looking for a fight or debate over every matter of freedom. Right? The faith that you have is a blessing. Praise God for it. But, you know, you don't have to press undue judgment upon yourself because this weaker brother over here is convinced. You don't have to be convinced that I can't do this because he don't do this. I just need to be wise not to do it in front of him if it causes him to what? To stumble. You know, in 1 Peter 2, Peter talks about using your liberty as a cover-up for sin. Look at it. So there's responsibility here. Live as people who are free. Not using your liberty as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. What he means, you can become self-deceived using your liberty as a cover to go out and sin. It's just a cloak. And you wave the flag of Christian liberty so that you can go carouse, perhaps. Maybe a guy enjoys the party life downtown. He enjoys getting drunk. And because of that, you know, he says, hey man, I'm, I'm free. You know, uh, juice from the grape, there's nothing wrong in and of itself. The barley or hops, there's nothing wrong or inherently sinful about them. And they use that as an excuse for the party life. It's a cloak, a covering, Christian liberty, a covering for their sin. 
So there's a warning. Paul also reminds the weak of the danger of doubting. To be gripped where God has set you free. That's a lack of faith. Rooted in doubt, which Paul says is sin. So for them it may become seemingly pious to make a bunch of rules. And then try to press them on the rest of the body. Paul says no, we don't do that either. We don't do that either. So in terms of application, a few things as we close. Number one. Whenever, whenever the likes of the Pharisees or the Judaizers arise in our midst, those who want to make laws or or legislate laws that um, the Bible doesn't, like they tried to do in Galatia, it's faith in Christ plus circumcision, plus this, plus that. When those arise, they must be opposed immediately. Principle number one, application number one. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, so we cannot and we must not be subject to false teachers. We cannot and we must not be subject to in-house lawmakers. Amen? Amen. Also, the weak are not to be allowed to force their own convictions on the conscience of the strong. If it's forbidden for them, it's forbidden for them. Don't press that on the rest of your brothers and sisters. Christian liberty is not to be taken away because some don't understand in their own minds that all things are indeed, what? Clean. At the same time, Paul's perfectly clear that the strong have an obligation to, number one, accept the weak, not to push them out. Sometimes that may mean voluntarily giving up our freedom if it gives offense to them because they don't know any better. They're convinced that these certain foods or drinks or activities are not permissible for them. If that's the case, I'm mature enough where I can forego my freedom for the sake of their conscience, all the while, chapter 15, trying to help them what? Grow. And you're not going to really help them grow if they're convinced that all alcohol is wrong and you're popping the top on a beer going, bro, come here, let me, hold on. Let me talk to you about this. Let me set you straight, brother. No. Forego the freedom for the sake of the brother. So the goal, again, is to build them up. All the while, Paul submits that the principle of love for the brethren is paramount. This is what it is to walk in love. This is how we can forego these things. Do everything in our power to preserve the unity of the church, not to fight about these secondary, insignificant issues. Now, when the gospel's at stake, people's feelings are secondary. Okay? When the gospel's at stake, it doesn't matter what they feel. When the gospel's not at stake, our love for our brothers and sisters, despite their weakness, fulfills the what? Law. Romans 13, verse 8. So we've been reminded we should live our lives before the Lord. We need to mind our own business when it comes to things like eating meat, drinking wine, observing days, or how we may view the Lord's day. And we're told in verse 22, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. I don't need to get on a platform. I don't need to get on Facebook. Say, Christian liberty, man, this is what it looks like. Really? And also, Christian liberty goes both ways. We have the freedom to, 
And we have the freedom what? Not to. Freedom to eat and drink or do anything not sinful before God as you see fit, but always be willing to, to, to forego your liberty for the sake of the weaker brother and sister. That's the principle in this last half of chapter 14. And I'll tell you what, and very happy, that is very blessed, is the church that knows these things and does these things. Amen? For we are on equal ground in Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, we're about to come to the table. If you believe there's a way to heaven, that you have good in and of yourself to get to heaven, if you believe that there's many roads to heaven through religion, just so long as you're sincere, you're sincerely lost this morning. And I can't encourage you enough to know this one truth. There is one way to God. And it's through His Son, Jesus Christ. For He Himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. It's not enough to believe the facts. You give mental assent to the facts but you also must come with broken repentance of heart to submit yourself completely and totally to Christ, His work on place of the sinner, His worth as a sacrifice on the cross, dying for the sins of those who believe, having lived the perfect life that God requires, because to get to heaven you have to be perfect, and you're a sinner. And you need a substitute. And there's only one. And it's the Son of God, Jesus Christ. If you repent of your unbelief, you repent of your sinful rebellion, and you place all your faith and trust in God through His Son, Jesus Christ, the Bible says you shall be saved. Saved from what? The wrath of God to be upon you forever. That's what hell is. Do not partake of the table if you don't believe that. Do not partake of the table if you're under church discipline in another church. Do not partake of the table if you're in in gross, unrepentant sin until you repent. This is for God's people who know they're sinners, who know they are saved by grace.